All right, we're starting a new mimer. Um, it's a Hanukkah mimer from Tovshin Lamed Ches. That is, well, I'm trying to think if it would have already been 1978 or if it was still, it was probably still 1977. Because, you know, the English year changes in January and it's like a few months after the Jewish New Year. So, could be it was still, could be, I didn't do the date conversion to see, it's probably sometime like December of 77, because it was 5738. You guys following what I'm saying? Okay, this is totally unimportant, but the point is, it's a, it's a mimer from Hanukkah of that year, okay? A mimer from the Rebbe, and the Dibra Maschel, the opening words are from a Braise, from a rabbinic teaching, from uh, from the Talmud in the Tractate of Shabbos, Toner Rabbonin, our rabbis have taught, Mitzvah Ner Hanukkah Chulu. The mitzvah of the Hanukkah lamp or light is etc. Okay, so most my modern start with a pasuk with a verse from Scripture. That's probably ninety percent of the time, I would guess. But sometimes the jumping-off point of a mimer is uh, a mimer chazal, a saying of our sages, and that's the case here. So as I said, this is a teaching from the tractate Shabbos. It's interesting. There's no tractate devoted specifically to the laws of Hanukkah, but where do you find the section that deals with Hanukkah? It happens to be in the tractate of Shabbos. Why? This is a total aside. It has nothing to do with what we're learning today, but... Because when it's talking about Shabbos candles and the wicks and the oils that you can use for Shabbos candles, so it takes like a, uh, it, it goes on a tangent and speaks about the wicks and the oils that you use for lighting the Hanukkah menorah. And then it speaks all about Hanukkah. Okay, at any rate, that's not important to the main subject. Here it is. Here's a quote from that teaching. Beis Shammai Oymerim. Beis Shammai, the school of Shammai. You're familiar with the school of Shammai, right? Famous school of Shammai. On the first day of Hanukkah, you light Shmoina, eight, eight lights. From there on out, you diminish. One less each night until how many do you light on the last night? One. Very good. You ever seen that? No, because we don't follow Beishamai for the halacha. Beis Hillel says, the school of Hillel, the counterpart of Beishamai says, Yem Rishain, on the first night of Hanukkah, Madlik Achas, you light one light. Mikan from there on out, you increase one at a time until on the last night you have how many lights? Eight. You ever seen that? All the time. That's what we do. Okay. Time of Beishamai. And the Talmud continues and says, the reasoning of Beishamai, Keneged Pareyachag, is to correspond with the bulls of the festival. What are the bulls of the festival? The festival means sukkis. What are the bulls of sukkis? Karbonis, they are sacrificial offerings that were brought during the eight days of sukkis. Every single day there would be um, a number of bulls brought. On the first day of sukkis it was 14. On the second day it was 13. On the third day it was... Twelve! Amazing pattern recognition. That's genius when you can establish a pattern with just two examples. Very good. And then it goes lesser, less, and less until um, the last day. And then the total number is 70, which corresponds to the nations of this world. The bulls that were brought as a sacrifice during Sukkot represent a gift that the Jewish people are bringing on behalf of all of the nations of this world to bring world peace. Okay. So... The reason for Beishamai saying you do one less light on the Menorah every night is in order to be congruent with the bulls of the Sukkot festival, the sacrificial bulls of the Sukkot festival. The time of the Beis Hillel and the reasoning of Beis Hillel, the Mylan is because you ascend in matters of holiness. Anything that's holy, you don't diminish, you increase. Okay, that's the excerpt of the teaching from the Talmud. It goes on, there's more detail, but this is the pertinent excerpt that the Rebbe brings here. Okay. Yeah, we're good? Fine. 
And it is known the, um, how do you say a diok? A diok means he zeroes in on a, on a detail and sort of asks a question. Who does? Admur Azokin. Who's Admur Azokin? The Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya. I told you before that the Rebbe's Maimarim are a study of all of the previous generations of Maimarim. The Rebbe is the seventh Chabad Rebbe, and he's taking all of the Chassidus that the Rebbeim from Chabad taught in the previous generations and sort of putting it all together. So, the Rebbe refers back to something that the Alter Rebbe says. Where does the Alter Rebbe say this? In Torah Oyer. What's Torah Oyer? It's a Sefer of my Marim of the Alter Rebbe. I know there are a lot of people in this class who study Tanya with me. Tanya, yes, is a book of the Alter Rebbe, but then there are other Svarim from the Alter Rebbe. Okay. So the Alter Rebbe says about this, What does Hanukkah, the Hanukkah lights, have to do with the bulls of Sukkot? Like, what's the thematic connection? Why are we even... I get it that that's what Beishamah is basing it on, but why does he feel that that's something that he wants to base it on? Especially according to what the Tzemach Tzedek writes. The Tzemach Tzedek is the Alter Rebbe's grandson. Tzemach Tzedek explains that, in fact... Base Hillel doesn't even doesn't even disagree with Base Shammai's reasoning. He just says there's a greater reason that overrides that reason. You follow what I'm saying? It's not that Base Hillel says no. The the Hanukkah lights don't have a thematic connection to Pariachag, the bulls of the festival. It's just that they say it's more important to conform with the concept of Mylon Bakadish, of ascending and increasing in matters of holiness. So, according to both Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel, there is a thematic connection between the Hanukkah lights and the bulls of the Sukkot festival. Why? I don't know. Okay. Umashimavur became Mekemes. Now, you're going to say, oh, 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 I know, I know, I know. They're both eight days. I've seen that in places. It says that Hanukkah and Sukkot are connected because they're both eight days. I got it. That's why, that's why they're connected. The Misper Shmeina, that the number eight, made al bechinus shalamayla mishtalshlus. And eight is the number above ishtalshlus. Ishtalshlus means the chain like process of development of the worlds, how the infinite creates finite worlds, increasingly finite worlds, until it culminates in this physical world. So there's a system of ishtauschlis, of world building, and that system is associated with the number seven, because seven is a number that re it reiterates itself within the patterns of the, the order of the world. The order of the world, we also have a word for that, well, one word, word. A one-word word, a one-word term for the system and the order of creation. It's called nature. Nature doesn't mean going out into the woods and hiking and taking a picture of an owl. Nature means the way things are because that's how they are. Whether we're describing the nature of, I don't know, the properties of water, or we're talking about the nature of uh, uh, how, how, how a how a plant reproduces, or we're talking about the nature of, I don't know, human nature, like the way people think, or the nature of spiritual realms. Yeah, the, like, like angels have certain properties that are natural to them. So nature just means the way things are, that's the way they are built. Yeah? Is that similar or different to the code? The code, yeah, it's similar. It's, it's a similar concept to the code that we were, yeah, it's not the same code that we were speaking about before, but yes, it is a code that is embedded in the way things are. It is the, the, the rules for the way things are. And we see seven repeated in nature. The, the, the world was created in seven days. And then after the seventh day, it loops back around because seven is the, the full cycle, right? You don't have the eighth day of the week. You, have, you go back to the first day of the week. Seven is the natural cycle. And, it, and we see, it's interesting that in the colors of the rainbow, you have seven, and you have seven notes on the musical scale, and then you come back to, to the original note. Seven is a natural number. Okay, so eight is going beyond nature. Eight means outside of the system. 
Hanukkah and Sukkot, or maybe I should say Sukkot and Hanukkah, because Sukkot existed before Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a rabbinic holiday. Sukkot and Hanukkah both have eight days, which shows that they both have a connection to the concept of eight, which is the concept of that which is beyond the normal order of things. Aha! That's why we want, or at least Beishamai wants and Beishelah would want, to make the lighting of the menorah conform to the bulls of the festival because of the underlying connection between Hanukkah and Sukkot both being eight days and therefore both being beyond nature. That's our answer. No, it's not. But that itself requires explanation. Shadabba says that itself, that itself requires explanation. Mahu akasher the sukkahs for Hanukkah lebechinis shelomay lemeshtalshlus. What's the connection of sukkahs and Hanukkah to the idea of that which is beyond nature? In other words, you're saying though, oh, I know the connection. They're both eight days because they're both beyond nature. Yeah, well, explain that. Why are they both beyond nature? I mean, what is what does sukkahs have to do with that, and what does Hanukkah have to do with that? And in fact, that's what causes them to be eight days. It's not, oh, they're eight days, therefore they're beyond nature. It's they are beyond nature, therefore it came out as eight days. So we have to understand that. All right? So that's one thing we want to understand. Yeah? Well, you have Shmini Atzeres. So we're trying to understand why Hanukkah and Sukkot are both considered to be holidays that have to do with that which is beyond the natural order of things. Begam, also. We know that the reason for the Hanukkah lights was to commemorate the miracle that happened in the temple with the oil. Now, the original menorah in the temple had seven lamps. Seven branches, seven lamps. Why does Hanukkah have eight lamps and eight days? Yeah, I know because the oil lasted for eight days, but even that I could, even that's not such a strong answer because it was one day's worth of oil. The miracle was only the extra seven days. So I have to understand why the Hanukkah menorah is eight branches, I have to understand why Hanukkah is eight days. I mean, if it's really going to be um, representative of the, of the menorah that was in the Beis HaMikdosh, then it should be seven. Okay. So I'm just questioning, what's the eight? All right. The Gam another thing we need to understand, you guys know that in the beginning of a mimer we ask a lot of questions, right? You also understand that there's no prize for answering these questions, right? You also understand that one of my great pet peeves is trying to learn a mimer with people, and they're like, oh, I know the answer. Like, I don't want to hear the answer. That's not the point. You know, what is the point, by the way? Why are we asking all these questions? It's the process. The questions are going to force us to rethink some stuff that maybe we've been taking for granted. So the answers are not even terribly important. In fact, I'll share a secret with you. There are many times where, my, uh, where a mimer will ask a question and not answer it. The answer was not the point. It's the process that you go through and the way you change your thinking along the way. Okay, another thing we have to understand. That's mimer language for another question. Ma sheha fergleich. Sorry, I got confused. There was a sudden Yiddish word. And I didn't hop that it was a Yiddish word. Hop is also a Yiddish word. Yeah, the vergleich. Vergleich means the comparison. Oh, he says in parentheses, ha-shva. Ha-shva, the comparison. What's the comparison to Nedus Hanukkahu, leilachag ha-sukkas bechlal, ala lapari ha-chagdafka? If you're going to say that Hanukkah is, evokes some type of, type of similarity or has some thematic connection to, to sukkas, okay, fine. But why specifically that aspect of Sukkot? Why the, the the bulls of the of the of the holiday? The lechayda harinedes Chanukah shaychim lahmenayda. 
And the Rebbe further asks, like, it's kind of weird that that's the aspect of Sukkot that we're applying to the Menorah of Hanukkah because, okay, the, the Menorah is a real thing in the Beis Amigdash. They lit a Menorah, a candelabrum, um, every day in the, in the Holy Temple. Now, the, the Padiachag, our, our animal sacrifice, that was brought on the altar, the outer altar in the courtyard. Those are two different areas in the temple, two different, um, two different vessels, two different areas, two different levels of holiness. So it's kind of funny that we're like smushing them together. Hey, l- l- let's read what it says. Seemingly, it doesn't make sense because the Menorah, the Hanukkah Menorah, is related to the Beis HaMiklish Menorah. After all, the, the, the mitzvah of lighting the Hanukkah Menorah is to commemorate the miracle that happened with the Beis HaMiklish Menorah. The, the bulls of the festival are brought like any animal sacrifice. They're brought on the outer altar. The Menorah and the Mizbeach are two different vessels. Especially as is explained in Kabbalah and Chassidus, the like the inner meaning of these two vessels. They're not just like two spots in the temple, two different uh, physical objects. They really have completely different spiritual meanings. Lighting the Menorah, lighting the lights of the Menorah, and bringing animal sacrifices are two different avidas. They're two totally different ways of serving Hashem. So what's, again, what's the fergleich? Why are we comparing one to the other? Va'ad she'shalcha neidois g'deilam shalahem karbonis chulu. To the extent that, okay, now i got to give a little background story. It says, yours, the neirois, are greater than theirs, the karbonis. That's a story. The story is, you remember Parshish Nase, all the Nasiim bring their karbonis, they bring their gifts. All the heads of the 12 tribes bring their gifts. And then, uh, but the tribe of Levi is not one of those 12. And then Aaron feels bad, and that's the end of Nosei, so that's the end of Nosei. And then the beginning of Baaleischa, which is the next parsha, basically is Hashem telling Aaron, who's the Kohen, and the Kohanim are from the Shevet Levi, he says, don't feel bad that your tribe wasn't represented in bringing sacrifices. Yours, meaning your mitzvah of lighting the Menorah, is greater than theirs, meaning their gifts that have to do with bringing karbonis. So from that story, we know that the Menorah and the animal sacrifices, although both occurring in the Beis Hamikdash, are two totally different categories. And in fact, as the 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 uh, promise to Aaron is made when when Aaron is comforted for his tribe not being represented in those gifts, yours are greater. Why? There's a reason given. Anon betalin. Because your lights will never be extinguished. What does it mean your lights will never be extinguished? It means that even when the Beis Hamikdash is destroyed, although the animal sacrifices will cease, the Menorah, albeit in, the, in another form, in the form of the Hanukkah Menorah, will continue. Okay. So the point is they're two totally different categories. Why are we using one to inform us about the manner of performing the other? Meaning, why are we using the diminishing bulls of Sukkot to teach us how to light the lights of Hanukkah? So far, so good? Okay. If you're at all not following, it's because you're using too much of the part of your brain that's trying to answer these questions, and you shouldn't be. Don't try to answer these questions at all. Okay. Vigam tzarech lohaven. You know what that means? We have to understand. What does that mean? Was that... Code for in Mimer language? I told you five minutes ago. Another question. Great. Another question, in case you didn't have enough questions. Lighting the Menorah, the time for lighting the Menorah, the mitzvah of lighting the Menorah starts when the sun goes down. It's known, this is a known question. The menorah in the Beis Hamikdash in the temple was lit during the daytime, specifically at Plaga Mincha, which is an hour and 
a quarter before sunset. And the Hanukkah menorah is properly lit only from sunset and on into the night. Since lighting the Hanukkah menorah is supposed to be uh, commemorative of the lights of the menorah in the Beis Hamikdash, especially uh, because we know that any rabbinic enactment was supposed to be similar, was supposed to follow the themes of the biblical concept that it is jumping off from. It would have made more sense, seemingly, that the lighting of the Hanukkah menorah should be at the same time as the Beis Hamikdash menorah, meaning while it's still sunlight out. So why is the menorah specifically lit after the sun goes down? Okay, so we had a bunch of questions. You want to rattle them off? What are the what are the basic questions we're asking? Remember? Yeah, what's the connection between the bowls of Sukkot and Hanukkah, right? And don't tell me it's because they're both eight, because then I'll ask you why they're both eight, right? Why they're both above nature, right? Yeah. Then you're gonna. Then I'm gonna say, and why specifically that aspect of Sukkot are you drawing upon? Meaning the the bulls, because that's the the altar and the menorah is the menorah, which is a totally different concept. And then one more thing, the timing. Yeah. Why 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 is it being done at night when the original menorah was done during the day? Okay. Right, why is the Menorah 8, why is the Hanukkah Menorah 8 when the original Menorah was 7? Right, we also mentioned that, exactly. So we have a lot of questions. Okay, I don't want to try to answer any of this. I just want us to open our minds and go on a journey. Okay, chapter 2. Chapter 2. Nekudas Habir Nekudas Habir, you know what a Nekudah, a Nekudah is like a point. So the point of explanation, meaning... There's an idea, there's a nakuda, there's a point here, that if you start to get this idea, a lot of your questions are going to answer themselves. You get what I mean? In other words, the Mimer is trying to get us to look at Hanukkah in a new way. And if you'll look at Hanukkah in a new way, then a lot of these questions will either disappear or they'll have obvious, have obvious answers. Okay. The general concept of the Hanukkah lights is to illuminate the darkness, both literally and figuratively. Okay? The theme of Hanukkah is lighting up the darkness. Remember, the Hanukkah mir- miracle transpired when the Greeks entered, by the way, technically they weren't Greeks, that wasn't their ethnicity, that was their culture. They were Syrians ethnically, but they were Hellenists culturally. But I don't want to be pedantic and say the Syrian Greeks every single time I read the word Yavanim. Yes, it calls them Yavanim. They were not ethnically Yavanim, they were culturally Yavanim. There was a whole, oh, a little Hanukkah background. There was the whole uh, culture war with the Hellenistic culture spreading through Europe and the Middle East. And that was, Hanukkah was one part of that. They were Hellenizing all over the place. And uh, the Holy Land was but one place where they were Hellenizing. At any rate, so Hanukkah is about lighting up the dark. And the original story of Hanukkah takes place at a very dark time when the um, Syrian Greeks 
<laughs> came into the temple and they defiled the oil. The spiritual darkness was so great that not only did the Greeks enter the temple and manage to defile, not only did they enter the temple, they managed to actually defile the oil. And what does that mean? Why is that like a greater, why is that more egregious? Not only they breached the area and they entered it and they defiled the area, but they, they managed to defile the oil. Why is that like to add insult to injury? The Shemin who is Kaidish. Shemin is identified with the level called Kaidish. Kuf Dalad Shin, Kaidish. of Shemin Mishchas Kaidish, like we say, holy anointment oil. Kaidish Mila Migarame. The word Kaidish is a word by itself. Um, I think what that means grammatically is it's a noun. Kodesh is a noun. It is a thing. As opposed to Kodesh, which is an, an adjective and a modifier, therefore it needs a word to modify. So Kodesh is a higher, they both mean holy, but Kodesh is a more intrinsic level of holiness than Kodesh. And as he's about to explain, Kodesh, Kuf Dalet, Vav Shin, contains a Vav. The Vav indicates um, sort of a secondary status. We'll, 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 we'll read the words inside. Bidugmas Hashem and Shitzof al Gabe kol amashkin ve'edem isad of yimoyim. Oil is like, it's, it, what it represents spiritually is um, seen in its physical property that it floats on other liquids and remains distinct from them. So oil represents this level of holiness that remains untouched, it remains above, it remains aloof, not in a negative way, but it's uh, sort of uh, intrinsically separate. So it's a very high lofty level, and then to, to, to defile that is obviously a real, a real disaster. So it's understood, therefore, that this, that they defiled all of the oil in the Holy Temple, um, that's even more egregious than the fact that they defiled the the holy area. Meaning it's not just they entered the holy area, the Hegel, but they, they got the oil. The oil is special. The oil, like the, like physical oil, floats floats on top of other liquids. It's it, the physical occurrence represents something that's happening spiritual spiritually, that the, the darkness of that time was such that the, the Hellenizers were able to do some real deep damage, some real deep damage. They were causing spiritual defilement to levels that are normally beyond, uh, be, beyond the, the normal grasp, like you have to understand, we're going to speak about it in this mimer, but they weren't trying to kill Jews, at least not at first. That wasn't their agenda. I mentioned um, a few moments ago that it, there was a culture war. It was a very successful culture war. I mean, we should talk about the rampant assimilation uh, among the Jewish people that happened at that time. The Hellenists were almost successful. I mean, those who rebelled among the Jews were a minority of the Jews. So it wasn't just a minority, the Jews being smaller than the, than the Syrian Greeks. It was like a minority among the Jews, minority from, from within a minority. So at any rate, it was, it was a really dark time. It was a very dark time. It was a time when, when our holy tradition was really at risk. So that's what we're saying, that Hanukkah comes from, it symbolizes the, the light overcoming the darkness because it occurred at a very dark time. Okay. We know that the level of the Hegel is a very lofty level within the ten levels of holiness. There are ten like areas of holiness, um, 
has to do with purity and impurity and, and sacrifices. But you know, there's the like the level of the land of Israel itself, and then there's the within the walls of Jerusalem, and then there's the Temple Mount. So the area that the Greeks entered is like a very high level. So just entering that level is already a major damage. But the fact that they got to the oil, that's like even worse. Okay. And this is this also is brought out by the aspect of the story that um, even after the Jewish people entered the temple and were able to purify the sanctuary, they were reliant upon a miracle in order to light the menorah again. In other words, things were so bad, they couldn't just be put back. It required a miracle to reinstate things. And the first miracle is not just that the oil lasted as long as it did. The first miracle is that they even found any oil that had been untouched. They found oil that still had the seal of the high priest. Yeah. And then he explains, This is the infinite light that is above Hishtalshlis. Like we explained what Hishtalshlis is, that, that order, that creative order. That on that level, that is above the natural order, even darkness does not obscure. No, to the contrary, not only does darkness not obscure on that level, but on that level, darkness shines. Following what we're saying? Things were so messed up, there was no natural rectification for it. The only way to fix things was not to make them normal. They could never go back to normal. The only way to fix things was to take a light that is beyond the normal system. What we call the On that level that's beyond the system, it transcends the normal rules. So darkness doesn't obscure. In fact, why not? Darkness can even shine. That doesn't make sense within the system but we're drawing from a level beyond the system. And that's, that, would, that was the only thing that would have fixed what was broken at that time. So what we're seeing is that the healing that happened during the time of Hanukkah was that that which is normally beyond the order of nature, the system of the worlds, entered the world where we had a light that is so powerful that even darkness can shine. Is that different than before the Greeks? Is it different than before? Yeah. It's one of those instances where the breakage leads to a healing greater than what we had previously. He explains further. Vahavaya betesefes Vav Yagia Choshki. There's an expression. Um, it's from uh, it's from a verse from the book of Shmuel, Shmuel Beis. Vahavaya Yagia Choshki, and Havaya Yudke Vavke, God, will illuminate my darkness. God will illuminate my darkness. But it says Vi Havaya Vi with the Vav, which means and and Hashem will illuminate my darkness. So what does that mean? What does that vav mean? That vav, which means and, it's the conjunction and, vav is that straight line. So it means and, adding something. How is it adding? A straight line. It's bringing something down. In other words, vehavaya, when you draw down from above the system, then, then even my darkness will be illuminated. 
וזהו שנר חנוכה מצווה משתישקה חמדווקה. Now we understand why the menorah is lit during the dark. Why do we wait until night to light it? Why? Because that's the whole point of Hanukkah, that the menorah can take on the darkness. That's the whole point. The whole concept of Hanukkah is to illuminate the dark. Yeah, well, you're right. That's how we illuminate the dark. We make the dark illuminate. You're right. Yeah. Is it a miracle to light a candle and it illuminates in the dark? Or is it more of a miracle for the dark to illuminate itself? I mean, what, what, what's more miraculous? Yeah. What's more miraculous is when the dark shines, because the whole definition of dark is that it is the absence of light. So to light up the dark is to override the darkness, the effect of the darkness. To cause darkness to shine is much more miraculous. It's to, to change the, the essence of darkness. When we physically light a candle, right. yeah, we're lighting a candle, you're right. But what it represents spiritually is the concept of turning darkness into light. And that we do all the time. And Hanukkah is what gives us the power to do that. When we not only overcome spiritual darkness and get past it, but we turn spiritual darkness into a spiritual asset, that's that transformative effect which Hanukkah really is the, the source of that. Okay. V'zeu gam mashinez Hanukkah heim shmeina dafka. And that's also why there's eight of them. That you understand, right? Because eight, what's eight? Supernatural. supernatural. What does that mean, supernatural? Eight is beyond seven. What's seven? Nature, the regular system, the regular cycle. Eight is outside of that, beyond that. Things were so broken, the only way that they were fixed was to take something beyond the regular system and bring it into the system. So that's why it's eight. That's why there are eight days. There's eight lights, eight days. He actually said first, that's why there are eight lights. And then in parentheses, and that's why there are eight days. Because the number eight, as we said in chapter one, is indicative of what? That which is above the normal, natural order of things. Because that's the level, specifically, that is required in order to turn darkness into light. Okay, that's the end of chapter 2. Which darkness is turning light? Like when this happened, I'm assuming it's talking about this moment that they found this oil. So I was saying before that this was a very spiritually dark time. I was explaining that Hellenism was making inroads and threatening to destroy the Jewish people from within. So that's, that's pretty dark. We're going to explain a little bit more as we continue in the Mimer, exactly what, how this darkness manifested, meaning what, uh, what was under attack specifically. I understand it was something that was a pervasive threat to Torah and Judaism itself, but we're going to get into more specifically what idea was, was being threatened. What was the linchpin here? It's not a physical, visual darkness. Well, it's also a physical darkness, which that's precisely why we light the menorah when it's physically dark outside. Right, but this is illumination from darkness versus light. What we're talking about, the miracle in the times of Hanukkah, the original Hanukkah, was not that there was a physical light. It's, I mean, the physical light is symbolic, or it's, 
uh, representative of the spiritual victory. The, the Elit the Menorah was, was representative of the spiritual victory. The spiritual victory is that there was an incredibly powerful popular movement that was so embraced by the entire world at that time that Jewish people almost voluntarily spiritually destroyed themselves. Sounds pretty scary, huh? Might even sound familiar. There was a threat to eradicate Judaism by taking over the Jewish mind in a very subtle, very gentlemanly way where the Jewish people themselves would invite it and feel that they were still Jewish while it was happening. We're going to explain it. We're going to explain it because this is what the Mimer is going to get into next. Okay. Chapter 3. Let's do chapter 3. Ubiro Inyan. I saw recently a podcast. Jordan Peterson was talking about doing his biblical thing, and he was talking about how Ben Shapiro was on, talking about the book of Exodus, and he was bemoaning the fact that Ben's mind was wasted on the culture war and he said he should be he sh- he's like he said it very respectfully i mean they work together obviously they're 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 friends or at least colleagues so jordan peterson said you know the real important ideas are theology and philosophy and uh, that, that's what the great minds should really be devoted to and he said uh, ben is using his mind to fight the culture war he was like bemoaning that as like a loss and i was thinking about that a lot like, oh, and, and, and then at the same time, at that, this very same day, actually it was yesterday, the day was yesterday, somebody sent me a clip of Ben Shapiro uh, saying, why are there not more Orthodox Jewish thinkers out in the public sphere fighting the culture war? So it was like, it, it wasn't a direct response to that. In fact, I think the second video I saw chronologically occurred before the first video that I just described. The point was I was thinking about it a lot. I still haven't come to a resolution, but should, I guess I'm not asking this theoretically, I'm asking about me. Should I be commenting on current events or should I be learning my modem? And I'm grappling with that. Um, Obviously, anything of worth that I would have to contribute would come from these my modem. So I'm thinking maybe it's when we learn the Maimotum, we just try to have in mind the practical application to what's going on in the world today. Although you can make an argument that, you know, at best a few thousand people are going to watch a video of learning a mimer, and if you make a clickbaity title about some current event, then you could get a thousand times more people. Instead of it's a few thousand, it could be a few million. I don't know. These are the things I'm grappling with. It's none of your concern. You don't have to worry about it. Just putting it out there for whatever it's worth. Let's try to quickly do chapter 3. Okay. Let's do chapter 3 quickly. Let's explain all these matters in terms of our personal service of Hashem. Meaning, what does this look like when we apply it? Application. Maybe our answer, maybe my answer to my present conundrum will be found in this chapter of the Mimer. Okay, let's find out. So the Rebbe introduces something, a concept from his father-in-law's mimer. Remember I said the Rebbe is always drawing upon the previous Rebbeim's teachings. This that the Greeks defiled the oil was because they were fighting a spiritual war. In other words, from a military strategy point of view, there was absolutely nothing advantageous. Perhaps you would even call it a waste of time to ritually defile the oil. It's not like stealing the enemy's fuel or even to destroy the enemy's fuel. 
This is ritually defiling it, which practically doesn't really accomplish anything. The only damage is spiritual damage. And the Rebbe says, in the name of his father-in-law, yes, that was precisely the point. They were trying to inflict spiritual damage. They were fighting a spiritual war. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were not just fighting a material war. They were fighting also a spiritual war. The Hellenizers originally had no desire. I say originally because eventually things did come to um, military conflict. But originally, the Hellenizers had no desire to physically harm the Jews. That was not part of their agenda. They were Hellenizing. They were making the entire world culturally Greek. Which was a pretty liberal approach, um, meaning to say the Hellenists didn't really eradicate local cultures as long as you could sort of integrate your local culture with theirs. They weren't very particular about it. It wasn't like they demanded that you uproot any trace of your, of your whatever, whatever your local uh, beliefs and, and customs. Um, so they were, they were looking to do the same thing with the Jews. Rather, their main agenda was, and now we're going to take words from the Alanisim prayer. The Alanisim prayer is a special paragraph of thanksgiving, blessing that we say on Hanukkah. We say it when we pray every day on Hanukkah. We say it when we eat a meal. We say the grace after meals. So in the Alanisim prayer, it says... Um, that the Greeks sought to what? To make the Jews forget your Torah, Torah your Torah. We're speaking to Hashem in the second person here. And to remove them from the laws of your will. Again, speaking to Hashem in the second person. Okay. So to make you to make the Jews forget your Torah, meaning Hashem's Torah. <laughs> and to remove them from the laws of your will. I want to just preface. The word here for laws, which is grammatically not a word that stands alone. Chukay is when it's besmichos, when it's combined with another word. But the, the word, the noun that would stand by itself is chuk. A chuk is a particular type of law. Generally, there are three categories of mitzvahs or laws in Torah. There are chukim, uh, edus, and mishpatim. Chukim is just plural for chayk, same word. A chayk is a supra-rational law that has no basis in human intellect. Edus are laws that they don't make sense. You wouldn't have come up with them on your own from a city council meeting. But after they exist, you're like, oh, I see why. Like, for instance, um, the holidays. You're commemorating something. Okay, I get it. That's, that's what you're doing. Um, you know, chokim is something like, don't mix wool and linen. Like, that makes no sense. Mishpatim are things that you would have come up with just by being an intelligent person. Like, don't steal. Right? Don't, don't uh, dig a pit in the, in the public uh, thoroughfare and uh, leave it uncovered. Okay, fine. When the Hellenists were fighting against Torah and Mitzvahs, their main fight wasn't against Torah and Mitzvahs per se, but against the spiritual or godly aspect or quality of the Torah and Mitzvahs. In other words, if the Jews would have agreed to preserve Torah mitzvahs as a culture, meaning we do this because this is what our fathers did and this is our culture, the Hellenizers would have had no problem allowing them to continue to do so as long as they combined with it Hellenistic culture. The problem was the Jews said, no, when we do these mitzvahs, 
it is specifically because of the divinity of these mitzvahs. It's not just because of tradition. No, it's not just because this is what we do. This is because God told us to do it. They didn't like that. That they didn't like. That's crazy talk. Intelligent people shouldn't speak that way. By the way, the Hellenists were particularly perturbed by the Jews because the Jews are so intellectual. They thought that the Jews would be sympathetic to their approach to secularize Judaism because you're such smart people. Should, you should embrace the idea of doing things because it makes sense. And by the way, doing it because it's tradition also is a reason that makes sense. That's, you, can, you can be a secular conservative. You can say, I'm doing these things that are, that are rituals, and I know they're, they're, they're meaningless, but they're meaningful to me because my father did them. That would have been fine. But the fact that Jews said, no, 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 these mitzvahs have inherent spiritual value. Yuck. The Hellenizers were not okay with that. But they must agree. What? They must agree. They must agree? Why do you say that? That they have spiritual value. Right, they didn't want the spiritual value attached to it. Correct. That's what their that was their contention. Okay. So let's let's continue here. I don't know so much they recognized it really as as much as they understood that that was the main factor that would pose an inherent um, unresolvable conflict as far as assimilating the Jewish people. I think they understood that their success had been um, that is you, you can allow people to hold on to their culture. Uh, uh, you know, I think their success had been that they were dealing with people who were also okay with the idea that their that their way of life wasn't necessarily absolute morality. There's a certain moral relativism here. Um, once you say that these laws are categorically different than all other laws, that's what bothered them. Like, every society gets together and has its thinkers and legal philosophers that try to come up with good rules. But you're saying your rules are categorically different. Like, they're not subject to popular opinion. That really, I think the Syrian Greeks were actually pretty correct in assessing that as an existential uh, threat to their, their agenda, at least, you know, in, in, in the Holy Land. Okay, let, let me continue here because I want to finish this chapter. That's why it says that they sought to make the Jews forget your Torah, meaning the Torah that belongs to you, to, to Hashem. Meaning they didn't mind if it was a Torah, but divorced from Hashem. You can learn the laws. Go ahead. You can have a college course in Talmud and study the Jewish lore and uh, just don't attribute any sanctity to it. The Hellenizers did not care so much that the Jews learned Torah, they could learn Torah. They just wanted it should be a purely intellectual pursuit. Learn it because it's clever. The Talmud is so clever. The, the, the intricacies of its dialectic will sharpen your mind. Or like the verse says, that the Torah, there's a verse in Deuteronomy, Dvorim, Chapter four, verse six, which is the Torah will be considered among among the world as the wisdom, Hashem's wisdom, among the Jews. So yeah, great, be wise. And the the Hellenists, you know, they 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 enjoyed having different types of cultures 
under their banner. And they knew Jews are famous for being smart. So like, hey, yeah, you smart Jews, be smart under our Hellenistic banner. The entire thrust of their attack was to make us forget your Torah, meaning Hashem's Torah. To make the Jews forget that Torah is Hashem's Torah. Like, continue to learn it. Teach it. Become experts in it. Just don't think of it as God's law. And similarly with the mitzvahs, with the actual laws. The Torah means the concepts, the ideas. Mitzvahs means the code, the uh, behavioral code. The war that the Hellenists were fighting against the mitzvahs was against the divinity of the mitzvahs. They didn't mind if they were preserved as cultural practices or relics. They didn't want us to attribute divinity to it. The idea that the mitzvahs are God's will. That they didn't like. That's precisely the wording here. Chuke is that word chayk. Supra-rational laws. Of your will. God's will. That it's ultimately, it is moral because God likes it, not that God likes it because it's moral. It is right because that is the will of God. They didn't like that kind of stuff. There are two levels of meaning to this. That the other two categories of mitzvahs, other than chukim, what I called before the mishpatim and the edus, that they were okay with because that had some basis in rationality. And really the only war that the Yavonim were fighting was against the supra-rational laws. So they just wanted to make us not observe things like don't mix wool and linen and crazy stuff like that. Okay, Because those mitzvahs, it's pretty clear, the only reason you're doing it is because God said so. So one explanation is that's all the Greeks were trying to uproot. Just get rid of those mitzvahs. Those mitzvahs that don't have any intellectual explanation. Pirusha base, but then there's a second explanation. Ba'emik yeson, it's a deeper, the Rebbe says it's a deeper explanation. When it says they were trying to remove us from it doesn't just mean the chukim laws, the super-rational laws. It really means they wanted to remove us from all of the mitzvahs, but not even to remove us from the mitzvahs, to let us continue to practice the mitzvahs. But to remove from us the feeling of divinity that's even in those other laws. In other words, ultimately, the fact that in Jewish law it says that uh, if, if you damage somebody's property, you have to pay for it. The reason that a Jew does that is not because that's convention, that's what moral people seem to all agree is normal, but rather because that is what God Almighty has deemed to be the truth in His infinite unknowable wisdom. Well, what's so infinitely unknowable about the fact that if you damage somebody's property, you should pay for it? There is such a concept that ultimately, even behind the most rational laws of the Torah, there is a divine core that is incomprehensible to mortal intellect. Which is, where does this surface? Where do you see this become relevant? When a law that is normally considered ubiquitous or ubiquitously moral becomes inconvenient. And then we begin to rationalize. Because if, after all, we conform to the mitzvah because of its rationale, well, when it starts to offend our sensibilities, whether for you know, selfish reasons or even for, uh, for more lofty reasons, it offends us on a philosophical uh, basis. So then we start to figure out loopholes to get around it because you know, God wouldn't want that. Surely he wouldn't want that. You know, this causes too much trouble. This is too, uh, or this is too intellectually untenable. So we just dismiss it and move on. But if you follow the mitzvahs, even the mitzvahs that make sense, if you follow even the mitzvahs that make sense, because God said so, well, then you have to do it no matter what, because God said so, even when it's inconvenient for you. So one explanation is that's what the Greeks were targeting. They wanted us to, which is really deep if you think about it, 
Like, they didn't even have the internet. How are they going to do this? What they wanted to do is, this is a crazy agenda, to somehow accomplish that there would be a Torah-observant Jewish community under their, under their governance, which would continue to observe Torah, study Torah and do mitzvahs, but have no feeling of divinity in regards to any of it. And the crazy thing is, they were almost successful in accomplishing that. And the fact that they didn't required drawing down a light that is what we call eight, beyond the natural order, in order to repair that, that, that damage. And that's what we're representing symbolically when we light the eight-branched menorah in the dark, at the, at the time of darkness, after the sunset. Okay, so the, que the great question you're asking is, and I have this question not only about this mimer, but about many mimerim, where the Rebbe will explain the, the thought process of our foes, whether it be Homan on Purim or Parai in Mitzrayim. And the question that often we ask, or I've asked, is, did these bad guys know all of this? Were they conscious of this? Because if so... That makes them pretty spiritually tuned in. Right. Why didn't they just join? And uh, that is the definition of evil. They understood exactly what it was. And they chose to oppose it. 